Footballers' Lives with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Thanks for tuning in once again to Footballers Lives. Now today's episode features someone who I've got to know really well over the last decade. Like most England fans of a certain generation, Italian 90 was a massive big deal. It felt like the regeneration of football in the country to a certain extent when we began the long slow climb out of the doldrums. The hooliganism of the 70s and 80s, the disasters at Bradford, Heysel and Hillsborough and one of the stars of that team was a man who'd not even made a competitive appearance for his country before the tournament began. It is Mr Paul Parker. Now I vividly remember the semi-final against West Germany not only because we produced one of the best performances I've seen by an England side in 40 years maybe I've been watching them but also because it was the same day that I was expelled from South Axone Comprehensive School which was rather embarrassing at the time as you can imagine. Now thankfully I was allowed back in on appeal but I suppose this is a story for a pub garden over a few pints of Guinness sometime. So fast forward 21 years from Italian 90 and all of a sudden I'm in a TV studio in Singapore fronting Singtel's Premier League coverage and my main pundits at the time were two members of that squad, Steve McMahon and Paul Parker. And we went on to work together for many, many years. And I also worked with Paul's wife, Nicola. I edited a fragrance magazine of all things for her in my spare time, which I actually really enjoyed because I've never lost that publishing bug. Nicola actually makes an unexpected cameo in the following chat, by the way, but 99% of it is me talking to her husband, Mr. Paul Parker. What was the biggest highlight of your career? The League and Cup double with United in 1994 or working with me on Singapore television for seven years? I'm going to have to go where my bread's buttered. I'm going to go with working with you in Singapore <laughs> because at the end of the day, when it was at, all those years ago and we're still talking now, yeah. I, 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 look I look absolutely fantastic. You struggled. <laughs> I think that's fair comment. It is early in the morning. <laughs> Um, I think it's fair to say that you like Singapore, whereas I absolutely loved it, you know. Um, were, were you missing the game? Were you missing being in the thick of it and going to matches? Oh, yeah, 100%. It was, I, to be honest, I think I got a little bit, I was, well, I got I was getting a lot of the green-eyed monster. I wanted more out of it. I was in the wrong place. And we are talking about Singapore, aren't we? Yeah, yeah I, I, was, I was in the wrong place. I really... And I say this is that going to Singapore, I should never have done it because it wasn't fair on my family. It was just me making my decision, convincing them that it was the right thing to do because Sitanta had fallen out of bed. I was thinking about I wanted to be involved regularly in football and I just saw opportunities for me to go over there and to get regular work. The thing that done it for me was great being on a I'm working on TV, being a pundit, working for ESPN, working, doing stuff for Fox, did Fox on Australia, I, I, some great name companies. But the problem was the time difference. That was a killer. I just didn't enjoy the time because once the game had finished, it was the early hours of the morning as such, you know, and even you do Champions League, you're starting at two or three, depending what time of year you're finishing by six seven and then that moment was gone because by the time you other people by the time you finished people were going to work and then there was no one to talk about what you were done there was nothing like that and it, 
it wasn't real and I suffered it because I was telling myself it was right. It had to be right because my family were with me. So I had to work hard and keep myself in there. But I wasn't 100% enjoying it, to be perfect. I was just getting over the line and meeting people like yourselves to be able to chat and talk about, especially as you that you'd just come over from the UK initially, you had a story to be to tell and I was listening because I was missing it and you and you knew more than what I did because I'd been I'd been out the sink. What I was watching on TV and seeing was no different to what anyone else living out there was was actually seeing and hearing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I suppose I'd just done a year at ESPN and I was meeting players and I was in, I was heavily involved with the game. I, I, I didn't realise that. And it's weird with the time difference. I mean, I, because I loved it, it was my dream job. I, you know, I, I kind of really embraced it. But the 2014 World Cup was good fun because yeah. Jerry Armstrong came out. And what happens there, you completely change your body clock. You have to sleep during the day for a month and then work during the night. But then Jerry Armstrong was making me go for a drink straight after we finished at sort of seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And we, we got some funny looks parked, I'll tell you. I, I, can, I can actually remember that. And I was actually meant to be a part of it. But I got, I got something offered to me, which is absolutely incredible, which if I wasn't in Singapore, it mostly would never happen. I got offered the opportunity through a, com through a company, not in the media, just to go out and entertain customers in Brazil. So I went to Brazil for that for that time, and I come back at the end of it. If you remember, about I'm, I missed because I was away for two weeks in Brazil. So I went to um, four games. I stayed on Ipanema Beach. I stayed in a fourteen bedroom house on the beach, just outside, about an hour outside of um, hour and a half outside of Rio, and we were travelling everywhere by private jet. And I was taking it was absolutely amazing what I got offered and. And that was a time where, you know, doing World Cups and doing Euros in Asia was brilliant. It was just all football together and nothing stopped. It was just going, going, going. But to go and do that was something incredible. And I still remember it to this day. And I would never go back to Brazil again because I'd be so disappointed because the only time I wanted to go to Brazil was to actually play football in Brazil or to go and watch a World Cup. And I watched a World Cup in Brazil. I'm never going to be able to play in Brazil because I'm too old now. So I don't ever want to go back there again because it would kill everything I saw about being in Brazil. Saw and enjoyed. It was in some of the people I met in Ipanema in a hotel. I bumped into David Dean. Um, who else? I bumped into Veron. I bumped into Arsene Wenger. Um, I was on the beach and I was jogging, jogging along the beach. And um, I, I'm trying to think who it was. I ran... I ran into a um, an Argentinian Argentinian player who I bumped into when I was in Marseille about ten years previous, and things. It was just incredible the amount of people I was seeing, and I was starstruck, absolutely wow. starstruck. To Veron come up to me, was staying in the same hotel. He come up in up to the come up to me in the bar, and asked me, "Did I want a drink?" Because he recognised me because from being at Manchester United, you know. And I was just, I was starstruck, starstruck because of Veron come up and asked me for a drink. Brilliant. And that was me. I love that story, going back to a World Cup sort of 24 years after you played in it, which we'll come on to later, and actually doing it, not even in the media, you were doing it yeah. kind of corporate stuff. And, and you like that, you know, you're full of personality, so you like that kind of schmoozing and shindigs with people, don't you? Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, that is me. I love 
love chatting to, I love chatting to people. To be honest, I like chatting to people to find out more about them. Mm. I'll talk football, but I would rather find out more about them and see if there's any kind of synergy there or anything like that, see if we can um, get in, you know, bounce off each other. I mean, some of the people I've met who got great jobs, own companies, never in a million years would I, would I have met these people, some of these people, if I hadn't gone out and got a life education of maybe of going to Singapore, really, eight, nine years of living overseas, opened my mind up and actually made me a better person, to be perfectly honest, in most sense. I may have crossed, may, prior to that, could maybe come across a little bit ignorant about things. I certainly learned life about religion, everything, um, just in general about life, you know, you learn a little bit more just about culture. I learned all about that from living over there. So I come back, I definitely come back to the UK, a better edu educated person about life from my time in living overseas. My kids come back better educated. They had that major education, which none of their friends ever had of living overseas, mm. which you can't, you can't go out and just go and deliver for your kids. So my kids, have, you know, they've definitely got something there. And now what they've got as well, they've got friends all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why I was a little bit surprised with what you said, where you said you kind of feel guilty about taking your family over there because traveling and living abroad has certainly enriched my life enormously. And I'm sure, like you say, it's enriched your family and, and your kids' lives. And it's just such a shame at the moment. We can't travel anywhere. You know, I bet, yeah. I bet you're dying to get out somewhere, aren't you? I'm, I'm not fussed at the moment about going anywhere. I'm quite, in, I've, loved being, I've, loved doing the, I've loved doing the games, repetitive and you're out and I'm going to matches or I'm, I'm going into talk sports studios to do stuff, which has been great. So I've enjoyed that side of it now, Richard. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll come on to what you're doing now a little bit later, but I'm going to take you back 25 years. Uh, you'd just come back, you'd had a year out with injury. You come back into the Manchester United team for the opening game of the 95-96 season against Aston Villa, which you lose 3-1 in that controversial grey kit. You've had a year out. You've seen Mark Hughes, Paul Ince and Andre Kanchelski leave the club. Nobody's been bought. Could you believe the team that you had come back into? And did you think in a million years that they were ready to succeed that season? Um, I think I had to say no, because the previous season wasn't a good one. You know, with losing in the final to Everton, um, Blackburn winning the league. But I wouldn't say um, I was 100% kind of it wasn't going to happen because of the players who had left. I never questioned the manager really because he'd done what he'd done because of his belief more than anything, what he had in the players coming through. And, and, he, and he, that's what he was all about. And he built off the back of that. <clears throat> it certainly cut my injuries cost me. The emergence of Gary Neville, I'm not going to say cost me because that would be that would be derogatory towards Gary. Gary got in there because he proved the point. He was at an age where the boss was looking at the long game. I was the short game. And, and to be honest, the long game was the right game because in, after that, they went on to do a treble. So I, I come in there. The result was, wasn't good. United losing at Aston Villa was a rarity, a serious rarity. I never really bounced on after my injury. I think mentally, I wasn't, I wasn't right. I didn't feel comfortable within myself. I felt that I lost maybe one of my greatest strengths was maybe um, agility. I should say strengths, not strength. 
with agility. I lost the fact of I was worried about my pace to twisting and turning. So if I wasn't able to do that, that meant that a lot of my game had gone. And I didn't want to get too close to people because I was worried about having to turn and run. So that was a big, big problem as well. So I think the boss saw it. He knew it. And, you know, the rest is history. You, you, have, to, you have to move on because I think when you look at most things in life and I look at what I know best, I look at football, most people get into football teams because of other people's misfortunes. That's, that's the thing about life. I say it happens in football. It's not often, it's not in the many times do people get in teams because they deserve to be in there. Managers sometimes have to make a tough decision and, and something falls into place. Paul Parker's struggling. Doesn't look like he's going to get near to what he was to the 93-94 season. He's been out with a long-term injury. Hasn't really done anything that made me feel he's going to be there. I've got a young lad coming through, doing a good job. I don't want to ruin his long-term progress by playing someone in front of him who might struggle and that could maybe mentally affect him for the rest of his career. I've got to make a conscious decision right now. Mm. And he makes that decision. That person who he makes decision against gets a little bit bitter, not happy, not relating to it, don't understand it. A few years on, that person looks at himself in the mirror, fully understands it and accepts it and gets onto it and really, in theory, idolises that, that person to this day to this day because he understands it and he knows that reason is that reason why that person is immortal mm. and is what he's seen by everybody is still the greatest manager this country's ever had is where he is because he has to make hard decisions at times and he's ruthless yeah well even though you said you couldn't accept it at the time you've spoken to me before about how proud you were of captain in the reserve side that season I think you won the, the central league yeah. so why was that and how different was non-first-team football back then compared to now, 25 years on? At the time, it was tough. It was really tough going into training, going into the changing room, training, but knowing you're not, you, you weren't involved on a Saturday. You was, in, you, know, you was on the bench, you was in the stand. You lose that enjoyment side. You, you, you feel like a spare leg. All that bit where you're kind of you see people doing it and you don't really think how they're thinking because you're in the mix. Then you're on the peripheral and you're seeing it and it's not enjoyable. But my bit, I was playing, as you just mentioned, I was a play, a captain in the reserves. Every time we were going to games, we was in lockouts. Games were kicking off at seven o'clock in the evening. They're being held over till half past seven to get people in. Going to games and having to call in extra police just to keep the crowd in check and with the likes of... um. For reserve team games? Reserve team games, yeah. So he's going to, say, playing like Sheffield United, going to Chesterfield to play there. So they wasn't ready to have that many people in to watch you. The grounds, I mean, you're playing in front of seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people. Well, wanted to see the likes of Beckham, Scholes, Butt, Neville, um, Phil Neville, and all other young Manchester United players, you know, Chris Casper, John O'Kane, um, Ben Forley. There was all, you know, I was captain. Dion Dublin was playing as well. And we had a decent, decent team. But, and I'd played in a few reserve games at Fulham. And I say, I say a few, and it's not being arrogant. I was fortunate enough to 
make the first team squad quite early when I was at Fulham, quite young. I was quite young, I should say. But, and I had to, I had to make a quick decision on what I was going to do. Was I going to be like some of the people who I played with in the reserves, who are pros, be bitter? And, you know, what, you know, that attitude, what am I doing here? Or am I going to turn around and am I, going to, am I then going to let myself down in front of these young lads who have actually been, from the moment I turned up at Manchester, Manchester United, these young lads have kind of been a little bit in awe of me. You know, Nicky Butt had always done my boots as a young kid. And, I, you know, to cover that, I always gave him boots back and gave him gear. He was a tough lad from Galton, so I didn't want to do anything that might upset him. But um, they were all, all great kids. And I, and I had to think to myself, I've got to be some kind of good pro here. I've got to do it right. I've, I don't want to be like, like I saw people were towards me, treating me not well, and that attitude of I shouldn't be here playing with you, I'm better than you. Because at the end of the day, I wasn't better than them because I wasn't good enough to be playing regularly in the first team. So I'm with them. And it's about doing the right thing. And to be honest, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it because all I was doing was doing what I was good at. And then I was giving it to them, which were they were they were learning to be even better than what they were because they was excellent. Their confidence. And to be honest, you learn a bit and you kind of, you grab a bit off of them, what they were and what they'd done. And, and it was really enjoyable. And winning, winning that league, winning reserve league, people go, well, doesn't mean anything. It meant a lot to them. And it meant a lot to me because they were the ones who were looking at me as their captain and looking at me as someone who they respected because of the way I went about it. They would have been fine to me as captain, even if I had a don't, don't give a crap attitude. They would have been, they would have been fine. But embedded in them, and when I see some of them about after on the media circuit, or when I go back to back to Old Trafford, they would they would have seen me, and they mostly wouldn't have respected me because I hadn't done my job properly as a senior pro. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. How you take took on that kind of nurturing role almost to a certain degree. You hear some players say that if you're injured or not in your manager's plans necessarily, like for you in that 95-96 season, then lots of managers will virtually ignore you. Was Ferguson like that or did you maintain a good relationship? Um, I think it fell out of bed a few times because that was down to me. But a lot of managers, Ray Hartford, when he was manager and when he was a coach, when Adam at Fulham and, and um, idolised Ray, it's just a shame he's gone now because he was a fantastic coach and, and a great man. But Ray used to call you DW, Deadwood. They'll come in and just call everyone Deadwood. And that is his way of, well, you're no good to me, like that. The boss was fine. He'll come in and at the cliff and he'll come up the stairs and he'll say something. He'll have, you know, but it's about how you went about it. I went about my rehab, a lot of it, I was wrong. I was wrong what I went and done. I was, because I couldn't do anything, I maybe socialised, not maybe, I did. I socialised too much. I didn't take it serious enough. And, and I know that that's affected me even after I stopped playing because I just didn't do things right. Of course, it took its toll on me getting back into the team. Nothing I can do about it, but I know it. And I admit to it, I'm willing to accept that. But um, the boss, in his way, he didn't, you know, you were there as long as he knew and he's getting the right feedback from the physios. And he knew the injuries. And he, but managers in those times, they would always quest, ask the players. They would always check in and how do you feel? Are you all right? You, you know, virtually saying, do you want to play? Well, managers, I think today, they're governed by physios. They've got doctors who, are doctors who govern the physios and 
they do blood tests now to tell you that you're not fit. You know, someone's took my blood and said, oh, you're not fit. I go, what? I've been doing all that pre-season. I've done all that. You're telling me I'm not fit. Sorry, I'm playing because there's a bonus involved. I'm playing. You're not stopping me playing the game of football. Players today, I don't think they worry too much about that because bonuses are maybe not as what they're seen, what they're seen like from many years ago. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Well, let's go back to that beginning of your football journey. You mentioned Fulham just then. I think you signed it as an 11-year-old. Maybe it was just after they'd lost that FA Cup final to West Ham, which was 75, wasn't it? But you went on to do an apprenticeship. What was that like compared to how young players maybe come through today? Um, I could use the word of um, Tenko within these walls, prisoner cell block H, everything like that. John, um, was it called again? Was it John? Was it, was it John Brown? John Brown school days kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, I think it was everything like that. But to the, the people who are slightly younger than me, I'm going to turn around and say it was a real apprenticeship. It's like like a, the ordinary man in the street, mostly the, the, um, the ground workers, the electricians, the carpenters, the builders, all those people who had to go through it. Football, that's how football was in the sense of you as a dog's body. Training was training. Training session was a bonus because you had to run around to fulfil what the first team players needed, and that's what it was: washing kit, cleaning boots, picking up kit, picking up boots, filling bags up, getting a little um, flick round the ear if you for, didn't bring the sweat top, you forgot their towel, you forgot their boots. Um, worst player in if you're the worst if you join as an apprentice and they judge you to be the worst player you strip down to so you, your jock strap or your slip and you was untied um, behind the bus and you was run across Putney Bridge behind the minibus and it was tooting and there was out screaming and shouting so everyone who's walking because a lot of people walking walked across that bridge to go Putney High Street and they were screaming and shouting it was just absolutely Hard work. It was. It was. It was awful. Now it'd be a criminal offence. Now if anything like happened, but there was boot. I got boot polished. Can you imagine a black man going back on a train from Putney Bridge all the way to Elm Park, about thirty-eight stops, one line, district line, covered in boot polish because he didn't do something right. So they covered. Did I complain? Yeah, I complained. I complained to my mum. My mum said, "Well, you mostly deserved it, Paul." That was mum's mum's answer. And I got on with it. Did I go and complain about it? No, because there was no one to go and complain about. Would I have complained? No, I wouldn't have done because that would have made me come across as weak. It made me, Richard, it, it made me really, it helped me get through my football career, those little bits. And um, it, it was, people come out and say, it's, you know, it's a bully and it's this and that. But it's what made footballers, it, what, it got, what found people out what you was all about could you take it i'm sure there was levels that they went with of certain individuals because everyone has a threshold but everyone knew what i was like and I, d I did have a bit of an opinion i was cheeky maybe rude and maybe i was living off the back of i felt i was okay as a footballer i got told in no uncertain terms i wasn't that great and in certain bits and my punishment sometimes I thought it didn't fit the crime, but you, you get a punishment. And it, there's a lot of players from my era will talk about it, but none of them would come out 
and want to call individuals out at all because mm. they know it done them good to get through the game because the game was brutal in that time, was brutal in that sense. And, you know, you, you'd have a go at somebody, you'd do something, and a ref, you'd go to the referee and the referee would turn around and say, well, to be honest, you deserve that. And then he'll jog on. What were you like with the kids once you'd graduated to the first team and you had young lads cleaning your boots? Were you a good Christmas tipper? I was, I was, I felt I was always good. I can't think of one instant where I was treat, I treated anybody like the way I was treated. It wasn't one of them that just, you know, you know, it didn't, I didn't take it, didn't take it with me to be like that. Did I, did I stand firm? Did I expect them to, to do things right? Yeah. Was I going to go and do that? No. Especially as maybe all of them were bigger than me anyway. But um, no, it never crossed my mind. For me, it was, I'm being selfish. It was about me, it done me a lot, of, a lot of good. Because mm. all my time was, I was always maybe top of everything I'd done through my school. For everything at school, I, I think there's still things on the board in my name up on there from the best, you know, at 100 metres. There was um, long jump triple jump, there was high jump, I was at high jump, there was at 800 metres, there was cross country, I was everything at that time and it was, you know, I was brought down to earth a lot of times yeah. by a certain individual who is still prominent on TV nowadays. Are we allowed to mention this person's name? Oh, it was Tony Gale. <laughs> Tony Gale was, was the ringleader, still is now, still is now in the way he is, he was, you know, he was, he was, he was the instigator of everything, he had in that much he always had something to say and he's still the same now but you know when at the time he I, everyone idolized Tony Gale a wonderful footballer very you know he's got himself a Premier League medal had a fantastic career over seven games he'd, he'll always say it himself but he's right that he should have been given the opportunity to represent his country really to be perfect because he was he was he was that good but he was a, a tough person with the young pros, he was tough. But a lot of us, we know we all communicate via a Fulham app. You know, there's a lot of us on, on, on it. We've got our own um, group and there's a lot of players on there, over 30 players on there and Tony Gale still controls that in his own way. But it's a kind of, he controls it because we go, well, it's Gailey, he's going to do that. And we respect him at that point of, uh, yeah, you can do that, Tony. Yeah. And you played alongside him. You graduated to the first yeah. team really quickly, didn't you? And you played centre-half on it, uh, alongside him. Were there any kind of really bad opponents for sticking the boot in or the nutting or the talking to you back then? There was, was a lot. There was Billy Whitehurst. There was um, Billy Whitehurst, who was like all over the place, Hull, Sheffield United. There was Bobby Campbell, who was Bradford City. There was um, Steve Whitten. Another player, played, played. there was some, every, every centre forward then was tough. There was tough in that, I mean, when I'm talking, I was, you know, five foot, five foot seven, weighing about nine stone, playing centre half in the third division. The average centre forward was about five, ten, but mostly weighing about 14 stone. You know, they wanted to hit me. They, they wanted to abuse me, to test me out. And... They, they never, they never ever won a battle. Never won a battle. Didn't even let them win one battle, because the end of the day, I was always in control of actually the whole situation because they weren't ever going to roll me. I weren't big enough to fight back physically. I wasn't or verbally, because you know people go to that level and 
my, my way of fighting with them, because I knew I could never do a lot of them physically, was always to nip in front of them. You know, there was always elbows left for me to, to take a whack, and I took a few whacks across me. So lucky enough, my nose hasn't always been that prominent in a length version, so the, one, the whacks on it weren't ever going to make it any flatter. But um, cheekbone got busted once. But you, you get on with it, you accept it. And the thing about it, a lot of them shook hands and got on with it. Mm. Always turn around and maybe call me a few little names questioning me height and wondering how the hell have I outdone them. But I never got anything really seriously nasty in the fact that people were bitter towards me because of my size and because of my colour. It was more the fact they just well, actually were shaking my hands and, and just saying brilliant, really. Yeah, oh, fair play. You were pretty much forced into a move to your local rival's QPR, 1987. Can you tell us the circumstances around that? It was a bit of an odd time, wasn't it? It was an odd time because Fulham had fallen to bits. Um, Ernie Clay, the chairman, had pulled his money out and Ernie had been there a long, long time. Ernie Clay was a, is a Yorkshireman, a big Yorkshireman, a kind of Yorkshireman. When you want to typify a Yorkshireman, Ernie Clay was, as I've seen, was a proper Yorkshireman. Remember, I was a Londoner. And I never, you know, as far as I'm concerned, everyone talked like me. Um, so to, uh, to go there and this broad Yorkshireman was the chairman. And every time he saw me, he made a big point of getting across to me and always got something to say to me. But he liked me. He, um, he always wanted to look after me, um, but he wouldn't let me go. You know, I left, I left Fulham at 23. He wouldn't let me go. He'd give me a new contract. And I think because he knew I loved being at Fulham, you know, putting an extra five or ten, or he most he, he thought he knew I'd stay. He was absolutely right. I was happy there. My mates were there. I grew up with because I was in a team with all the lads. We was all apprentices together. I think there was about eleven of us, and all of us were all to, you know we all all together. We a majority of us played together in the same team, so I absolutely loved it. And then when he pulled out, the new owner coming in was David Bullstrode, who had a I think it was Marla Holmes. I think it was based out of um, Jersey. And he liked me, and and I thought, right, okay, new person coming in, this is a new thing. But as it went on, Fulham, you could see that there was something else going on, and they was making a big fuss of me, even to the point of then I couldn't afford a car, so they gave me one of their company cars to use. Gave me um, what was it? It was an Audi A4 at that time in the um in the eighties, and it was like it was like long, it was like. Fin at the fin at the back and front and just got fatter in the middle. So I was driving this car, me five foot seven. I think I might have had a cushion and blocks on my feet, but I looked great. But um, so that that went on, and then all of a sudden this merger talk and it set boils down to really is that I have to, I have to go to um, Queens Park Rangers. Me and Dean Coney have to go to Queens Park Rangers for the deal to go through. In the end, I wanted to go because it was falling apart. It was, it was, we, was, we were struggling. We got relegated the previous season. So it was back in the third division. It was, it was a battle. I think we finished about eighth, ninth and bottom of that third division. And we was, the club was struggling. So, I had to, so in the end, I was quite happy to go in the end. And it worked out all right because West London was like my second home. I'd been travelling to West London you know, since the age of 11. It was that little bit further on a part of London I didn't really know because I just saw Fulham as West London and, and there's lots of QPR fans will always tell me, 
Queen's, Queen's Park Rangers is West London. Fulham is South West London. It's the, it's the posh side of London. It's not really, because they're, they're W12, Fulham is SW6. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? You know, QPR's up mm. Shepherd Bushway, isn't it? Yeah, but it, yeah. Was, it was Jim Smith who signed you. What kind of character was he? Well, you, you, you asked me that question and you, you got, <laughs> I can see a big grin and you're chuckling a little bit. Jim, Jim was my first ever, I'm going to come out and say, real manager. He was in that sense because you, because you didn't call him by his first name, you called him Boss or Gaffer. You know, proper. And again, he was just a, a brash Yorkshireman. He was a South Yorkshireman, and everything with Jim was just effing and jeffing, and it was just aggressive. He reminded me, and I keep saying it, but because the younger audience, he was a bit like Warren Clark, DL and Pasco, and he yeah. was DL. It was just like that. It was just an amazing, amazing man. I just didn't see enough of him, just didn't see enough of him after I stopped playing. You know, he, I think he was very much, help, he was there as, he helped me get to United, I think, because he was always very pally with um, Sir Alex. But um, he was, the way he was, he, he used to come and he was, after half time, he'd come and he was so angry, he'd come and a big blue vein was come down his head. And, but the bonus for me is that he liked me playing in the middle. And I think he surprised a few people by what his intentions were. I think mostly he surprised himself in doing what he was doing, but he did it and it worked out for him. And it was always, on my part, it was going to work because I, I love playing for him. And when he went, I was gutted when he left. Mm. Seriously, seriously gutted. When he, and, he, and in a certain way, I was maybe hoping that he would have come in for me <coughs> about to go to Newcastle because I would have gone just to play for him again because I just trusted him so much, because he said it as it was. But that never materialised, thank God, because of, I was enjoying QPRs. Lucky enough, I had, a, I had a good first season. But one of the funniest things about Jim Smith is that he gets to know his players, he gets angry, but he, he was just lovable in the way he was as a man, and everyone liked him. And um, we played a game, I couldn't never, can't, it was in the first season, and we come in at half-time, and he wasn't happy. And um, he's and he's he's having a he's digging people out, and he started having a go at Alan McDonald. Started having a right go at Alan McDonald, and, and we're all sitting there, and he's going, he's saying everything Macca this and f this and f that. You've got to do this Macca. You've got to do that. And everyone's just looking around, and I'm kind of going, what's going on here? I was naive to this point. I must have been just when I was just got there. I didn't really get it. Anyway, the toilets for our changing room, the home dressing room, outside the door, outside of the dressing room. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, Jim Smith opens the door and he just shouts, can you effing hear him, Macca? Yes, I effing can, boss. Yeah, all right, have you got that? You're going to do it. Yes, I effing am, boss. All right, hurry up with that fag and get back in here. <laughs> and I'm just kind of, and I'm looking round and every, every, it's just, but the rest of them were immune to it. They'd seen it. Macca used to hide not hide, it wasn't hiding anymore. He used to put cig a cigarette and a lighter underneath the U-bend in the toilet and have a cigarette at half time. Now, any you, you'll speak to anybody who watch Macca play regularly, and that's every QPR fan who, who absolutely idolised him, and anybody who played against him in football, Macca was a, a lovely person, the softest man in the world. He would have kicked his grandmother on the pitch. But Macca, you'd you wouldn't have said, ever called him a smoker. Never, not the way he played. He was incredible. His energy. I mean, we just do, you know, pre-season. Macca was always there, never stopped. He weren't ever going to win a race, but 
but he was always there. He'd always put the yards in. He was an incredible centre-half, honest, brave. And the only way defenders knew he was there was because of the fact you could smell him. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, I mean, I played next to him, played in the three initially when I went there, me, Macca and Terry Fennick. What an education that was. You know, Macca was about a year older than me. Macca, you know, jumped almost straight to the first team because Macca was, Macca was born an ugly man when he was born. He just, he was, every, he didn't care. He was doing everything. He would just shrug his shoulders and get on with it. Never got enough praise for how good a footballer he was. He was a fantastic footballer with a ball at his feet, especially on that, on that plastic. Six foot three, but he was, he was just like, he just moved so easily on that plastic. Yeah. And playing with those guys, Macca and Terry Fennick, did that help you to adjust to the level? Because it's easy to forget you had to jump up two levels to the first division, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point, that is, Rich, because it did. I, I always say that. I always say the plastic pitch made a difference for me. But to be honest, I've done a disservice to those, to those two. I should have said those two helped me get through it, to be honest. Um, Fenn was in the middle. Macca was on the left-hand side. I was on the right. And we'll be, cross, we'll be crossing over. Fenn was, Fenn was a great communicator. He was like a Terry Venables lieutenant. That's what he was known as. And he followed Fenn about, he followed Venners everywhere. But Fenn was brilliant in what he'd done, the way he talked. He was crafty. He was crafty. I've never met a centre-half like, like Fenn before. As a person, there was always another one up his sleeve. Even if he had short sleeves on, he'd pull a card out from somewhere, pull one out from his wrist somewhere. You just know that's what he was about, Fenn. And we played Tottenham one time. And, and I remember I was on the tunnel side and Spurs had a throw-in. And, and I was up against Paul Walsh. And Paul Walsh had run towards the ball and I'd kind of gone that little bit half a yard later, just in case he was trying to suck me in to throw, to maybe spin him behind me or get the ball thrown over my head. So I've only gone a little way, and he's spun out, and he's seen me still there. So it hadn't worked. And all of a sudden, he's carried on his run. I've gone Fen. I've gone Fen. Walshy. I can hear Fen in his Geordie accent say, got him. So then all I've done then was just take anybody who was in the space. All of a sudden, as that's going on, within a split second, the referee's blowing the whistle. And I've kind of spun round, I've looked round, and there he is, Paul Walsh is on the floor. And I kind of thought, what's happened there? And I'm looking around what's happened there, and I'm seeing Fenn walking away, just walking away from the, walking away, and I'm, and I'm just going, what's going on there? As, as we've gone to carry on the play, you've seen Fenn, Fenn is standing there, and he's just rubbing his arm like that, just going like that to his elbow like that. And, so he'd that given Walsh a crafty oh, yeah. old elbow. He'd, he'd, given him, he'd given him a nudge. <laughs> and that was Fenn. Fenn was, Fenn was a, a very underrated centre-half Fenn. Really underrated. So brave on the ball, brave in the air. He was just one of those players that... He, he, was, he was born a leader, an organiser of mm. men. Well, he kind of gets castigated a little bit for that Diego Maradona goal in 86, doesn't he? But he was on a booking, wasn't he? It's not as if he could have taken him out. Yeah, it's exactly right. And he is one of them you look at. I mean, I turn around and I played with Peter Reid, but Christ almighty, Reid, how slow, how slow was you going? <laughs> well, he'll say, like you, in 95, 96, it was because of his old injuries that maybe yeah. they'd slowed him down a little bit. But that QPR side, you got fifth in the first division, didn't you? And then Jim Smith, yeah. Trevor Francis came in as player manager. I imagine player manager is always difficult, but I think is it fair to say Trevor was a more gentle character and was that not quite what was needed or? 
it, yeah, I think straight away you, you go from um, Jim Smith, who was on top of everything, and he'll come out, you know, we'd, we'd be having a laugh and joke with um, Peter Strees, Frank Sibley, um, who else? There's another one now. I think it was, was it? No, it wasn't Roger Cross. We had, uh, who was it? Frank Sibley was a youth team manager. Um, yeah, Peter Strees. And there was A and other. And we'll be out training, you'll have a laugh. You'd be laughing and joking, and Strees, he'd be doing his little bit, showing everyone who. Going all of a sudden he'd do a trick and he'll suddenly pull out, take a chain out and show his UEFA Cup medal which he which he got when he was at Spurs and he had that he's another one he had that little bit about him Peter Sreeves and and all of a sudden then the boss would come out Jim Smith would come out and boom, bang everyone's correct like that he had that about him Jim Smith and for me that's great it's no different to Sir Alex as well the way it was when he came out and the moment. The moment the boss laughed, we felt we could laugh. It was like that then. When he was in a jokey mood, oh, we could have a laugh in. The moment he was serious, we didn't flinch. We just did what, you know, Brian Kidd spoke. We did what we're told. But um, with Trevor, people got, a few players got relaxed. All of a sudden, because he'd been a player, a lot of players decided that because he was, he was a teammate, you could still treat him as a teammate. You know, and they, they were still thinking, oh, I should be playing. They, were, they, they, they kept him, which I felt was wrong, you know, and, and I kind of got to know Trevor quite well, personally and off the pitch as well. And the moment he became manager, that all changed. That all changed, you know. His, his wife suddenly wasn't a, wasn't a friend. It was just someone who was a manager's wife who I respected as the manager's wife. And I corrected myself. A lot of the other players didn't do that. They felt there was owed something. And, and it kind of didn't help Trevor. And the incident with Martin Allen bit really didn't help Trevor. You know, and I, I felt sorry for Trevor because he got badly, badly treated there. That should never have happened to him, to be honest. And well, Martin just, Allen... Yeah, just remind us of, of that. I mean, Martin Allen was a young lad coming through. We got to be... No, no, Martin Allen, was a, Martin Allen was a regular. But he was, was known as Mad Dog later on, obviously, yeah. as a manager. Was that the character he was at the time as a player? Yeah, I, sp I suppose so. He'd run around and, you know, he'd go around. But Martin had a talent in him, which eccentric talent, I should say. Mm. I think he's the first and still the own. Saying it now, I'm, I'm the other eccentric player, I suppose we could talk about the Wickham Wanderers manager, couldn't we? Gareth Ainsley. Yeah. yeah, I think in his own way. But Martin was eccentric, you know, he'd become that. He was as a manager and I think he was in his own right as a player. But we was away at Newcastle and, and you know, it was only, there was only one sub at the time. And I think that's, um, I think we had an AP with us as well who'd come along just to really, to do the food on a bus to the pros. You know, put the Marks and Spencer's microwave in the oven and things like that. So we only had the one sub. Martin's wife was pregnant. She was about to have the baby or something like, oh, this is going into labour. Martin goes home, just goes. But he was sharing a room with Dave Seaman. So he told Dave Seaman, don't say anything. So he got to the point of where the team meeting was getting started. Where's Martin? Dave Seaman, in the end, had to say something. Of all the people to put in that, under that, it was Dave Seaman, which is totally wrong. Dave was such a nice... He didn't need that, Dave. But Dave, you know, you are with your work colleagues, aren't you? You're, the people that make you, make, make your life or could break your life, people talk about managers. It's not it's the people you play football with. It's your, it's your, it's your players, the players around you, with you the players in your team and the players who you play against. They're the ones who make or break you because because the way that the community is. So David had to come out and say, he's gone home, boss. 
you know. So, so he, he left. He left us in a lurch. We got a result, but he left. He left us. He left us in a lurch. To be perfectly honest, Martin, by what he what he went and done, you know, I I, I feel it was wrong. I, I really do think it was wrong in that situation. So that did given... did you have to play the game without a sub? Oh no, we had, we had to put the AP as a sub. What's an AP? Sorry, apprentice. Ah, oh, what apprentice? apprentice? Okay, yeah. Yeah, apprentice. Then it went. Then it got another name, a government name. Yeah. Then it went on. Yeah, why? Well, so now, so now they're called. Yeah, yeah. Now they're called something else. It doesn't relate to them doing work off the pitch. Mm. But um, yeah. So he left. He left us in the lurch. Other people might think differently, but she wasn't in danger. At the end of the day, he was there. He was working. I thought. I thought Trevor got badly treated. He, they'd done a magazine program. They had Martin and his his wife having a go at Trevor, and I thought myself, no. Nah. That wasn't needed by someone who's Trevor's, Trevor's a lovely man, fantastic footballer, absolutely brilliant. To actually have played with him, to see that hat trick he scored at Aston Villa was absolutely incredible. And he's just his he's movement and just one of them, and you're not doing that properly. And well, I think someone's, I'll show you. Bang, there you are. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Was he cut out to really be a manager? I would say. Not really, because he's nice and he still had that issue where, maybe a bit like Graham Soonis and Roy Keane, where he couldn't deal with people who are inferior. Mm. You know, they had to be as good as him. And nothing it's nothing against him, but some people are like that. I think Glenn Hoddle was like that in a certain way as well. And you can relate to it because you had it, they had everything. And they couldn't deal with the ones who maybe only had one of their strengths. Mm. There's a lot of players who have made great careers off the back of that. Some of them have had fantastic careers off of one strength. Yeah. Do you think that's also true of another one of your QPR teammates, Ozzy Ardilas? A bit too nice to be a manager? Yeah, Ozzy. Ozzy's a lovely pet, lovely fella. You see, I see a lot of Ozzy on the circuit, not so much on the media side, but every time you know you you go to a game at Spurs, Ozzy's there working on the corporate side. He's like an ambassador for the club. And every time you see Ozzy, he's still talking at 200 miles an hour. His English hasn't got any better. He's just, but he's, yeah, he was just a, a lovely person. I, lucky enough, had the honour to have played with him at Queen's Park Rangers as well. And he was no different. Him and Macca used to share fags, you know, and he played, as, he played, as, a, he played as a sweeper as well. Absolutely brilliant. There's a few times you know, you're on about the way they play at the back now. I would certainly had more confidence with him having the ball than what I would a lot of them because he was just he was just too clever, just too clever, you know. And he still looks very much the same. That's the thing about it. Then he must be on some kind of some kind of Argentine Argentinian health diet because he looks absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I've just watched your goal on YouTube, your only goal for QPR against Luton Town in 1990. Four years, one goal. The fans loved it because you were so popular there. But is it true that the announcer couldn't believe it could possibly have been you, so he gave it to Clive Wilson? See, I could turn that around and bring up some other things, but I'm not going to. But I think I think I heard about that rumour. It would have shut be honest, I'm not going to have a go at them because... Saying so, no, I am going to have a little bit because he's got to remember that to see Clive scored with his scoring with his right foot. That's a feat on its own, by the way. So um, yeah, I can understand the surprise really because I think I threatened to. I should have scored against Arsenal. I had a header. 
I made a run from the back and I had a header. I think I jumped Tony Adams in, in between him and Steve Bolden. I should have, should have scored, but I missed it. Missed it by about that much. It could have been that much, but I'm going to say that much. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a good goal. It was a great goal. I think, um, who was it gave him the ball? Oh, it was a, it was a really nice one-two, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I got the ball off for of Ray Wilkins, and I think it was, um, I played a one-two with Andy Simpson. And it was, it, I scored past Les Seeley and I told him that a few times when I was at United with him. <laughs> so that, that hurt Les at that given time. But it was, I, I, yeah, it, it would have it surprised everybody. I think everyone, even then, I think they was waiting for VAR to come out and say no goal. I'm sure they were then. <laughs> so how did you find out about Manchester United's interest back then in 1991? Was it a bit of old school tapping up? Was an agent involved? No, I was, I mean, it wasn't any tapping up at all because I didn't have a clue that United were interested. And um, I was sitting in the Royal Lancaster Hotel down at um, Hyde Park with, um, with Terry Venables and my agent at that time talking about going to Spurs, you know, and I'm a closet Spurs fan, grew up being a Spurs fan. When I started playing, I kind of stopped being a football fan as such in that sense. It just didn't, I couldn't put the two together. But um, I was just sitting there and I get um, the phone call comes in into my agent from Morris Watkins, who's a club solicitor. And he said about me going there, Terry Venables picked up on it and he just virtually said, if you go there, you're not going to come back. And I was just getting involved with a wine bar in Brentwood with my mate. And I talked about that and I talked about Spurs kind of being my team as a kid. And the fact of being in London, why do I want to go and live up north? Because I've spent all my life in London. I can then play, you know, if I'm at Spurs, I can actually live properly in Essex and not worry about too much about the commute as such. I thought it worked out perfectly. I go to Manchester and I don't come back. Mm. That's, that's what it boils down to. It was just, I just went there. I'd seen the ground many times. I played there as a QPR player. Seen it enough times. I got showed around it by Sir Alex. And he, he sold it to me without, without really trying, to be honest. He said enough to it. And, you, have, you had someone like him at that given time telling you everything about it, the amount of seats in each stand and the reason, you know, people sitting in the stand watching the game and I asked, why are they sitting there? He goes, oh, they're um, watching the grass grow. I turn up at the ground, there's a load of cars parked around. I think there's a reserve game going on. No, they're in the museum. You've got a museum? Where is it? Is it in the city centre and they park here? No, it's in the grounds. You put a museum in QPR's ground and that's the ground finishes a football club. You know, so um, so I'd gone from Fulham, which was re was quite small. I went to QPR, where it was bigger because they, they had three secretaries. They had two groundsmen. Um, they had their, you know, they had a decent training facility. It was a better one than what QPR had. We were like nomads. Plus as well, was, you know, that we had to kind of wash in our own kit. QPR, you know, they had someone to wash the kit. Um, go to United and, you know, I went, I went from a, three-star hotel I went to a five-star hotel and it was just you know when you talk about things United people say what do, what do you wish for more about going to United I wish it happened earlier mm. you know that's that's the thing about it but it had to have been in Sir Alex Ferguson era that's when it definitely would have suited I know that that's, that would have been my era while he was manager yeah and you joined before that massive 
era of success, if you like, when they started winning the Premier League, but they just won the FA Cup and then they'd won the Cup Winners' Cup when you joined in 91. I think you missed the Euro Super Cup win over Red Star Belgrade with an injury, didn't you? But yeah. I, think, I think people said that that was more like a friendly um, than, than any kind of massively competitive game. And it had to be over one leg, didn't it? Because obviously you're not going to go to Yugoslavia at the time. Yeah, I mean, lucky enough, there was only one game. Um, if it was, if people are saying it was like a friendly, I think are kind of talking out in their bottom, really. Um, they were absolutely fantastic. And we actually won the game 1-0, by the way. No one, I think you go and speak to anybody, and they don't know how. You ask Steve Bruce about that game, and Steve Bruce will turn around, and he got nutmegged so many times by their main striker at the time. And I can't remember his name, but I know it ends with IC. But um, it was absolutely, they were incredible. I played against um, Yugoslavia, as, as Yugoslavia as it was, at youth team level. I played against them at under 21, and I played against them at full level. And they had some of the best players and the best teams I'd ever seen. They were incredible. I never lost a game against them. I don't know how. But they were absolutely incredible individuals and incredible as a team. It, they were fantastic footballers, the Yugoslavians. It's just a shame if... Um, it's just a shame, really, what happened that they got broken up because somewhere along the line, as a nation, they were going to go and win a Euros or a World Cup without a shadow of doubt. I think everyone will have, would have believed that when you see that the Yugoslavians that went out and played in Italy as individual players, they was in all the best sides in Europe, old Yugoslavians. Yeah, well, they just won the European Cup, haven't they? You know, and that was yeah. the Super Cup back then, wasn't it? European Cup winners against the Cup winners, Cup winners. But a few months yeah. later, League Cup final against Nottingham Forest, your first trophy. So that must have been a really special day. Yeah, it, it was actually to <clears throat> playing in a playing in a, a domestic final. To be honest, you know, my big my biggest game other than playing in a World Cup semi final. To be perfectly honest, and it was a big stage. I think one of the big bonuses for us as well was that. Um, Stuart Pearce weren't playing. You know, Stuart made a big difference to Nottingham Forest. He was a big miss for them in that final, Pearcey. But we got, got over the line through a Brian McClare goal. It was, it was chalky. I'm sure it was chalky who mm. scored. I mean, yeah, we got... And it was... I think there's pictures taken. There was just me looking at a medal because it was the first medal I've seen from when, since I was a kid. Mm. You know, and I actually knew this one wasn't going to break if I dropped it. <laughs> you know, so it was proper. It was something. And, then you, but you do get that bug when you're somewhere else and you think, I can get more. Yeah. Well, there was, a, there was a real momentum building, wasn't there? Like I say, FA Cup 1990, Cup Winners Cup 91, League Cup 1992, and then it all goes wrong at the end of that season looking for the first title in 25 years. So, obviously, Leeds picture to the title. What are your thoughts about why it went wrong? Was it the accumulation of matches at the end of that season? Because there were three defeats in six days, weren't there, just towards the end? So, had fixtures just caught up with you, or was there more to it than that? I think it was um, fixtures, yes. I think there was injuries. I, I was picking up a few hamstring injuries, which I never had before. But that was a lot of that was to do with um, my um, cruise ship, which I'd done in November 1990. I was getting the compensation from that, the fatigue um, on my side. That was down to a lot of high-pressure games being at United. Every game was like a cup final, especially away from home for teams. And I'd never been used to that regular intensity of games. Brian Robson was missing a few games. We had 
two or three injuries that kept occurring and we lost our we lost our momentum that way and we was a little bit <clears throat> i say naive we'd look we maybe a, we just we just couldn't change what we was doing to be perfectly honest and we just we did lose that momentum Leeds got stronger and stronger and as they always say and there's no argument to it richard the best team at the end of the season is the one that finishes at the top wherever the one in second place says if if buts and maybes they are what they are if buts mm. and maybes it's like the man in a pub in it i could have been a footballer <laughs> there's oh there's not many of them around are there yeah Crikey. Is it fair to say that there was a bit of a hangover after that the following season and that hangover was only really addressed in November when a certain Eric Cantona signed to give the dressing room a lift? I don't know if, he, I don't know if it was about a lift. He definitely added something different because we was a good side still. We were still we was a good side. We were competing. Eric comes in and he makes a difference. As the boss said, he added a, new, a different dimension and he was something, it was something different. He added a... It was a, it was a maybe it was a new cog in a in a in a machine that was going good at that given time and he come in and he was just different on and off the pitch he was something different he added a bit of a buzz the fans had they gave the fans something else as well to go with you know because yes it's about the players but the fans are just important they needed maybe to see something different as well to to drive them on to get them to believe as well he made us believe, I think I have to say, come out and say. And yeah, I think we, we, we owe a lot as, as players in the club to what Eric done from when he was at Manchester yeah. United and especially in that, in that first season because he gave everyone a big belief. Yeah, but before he signed, obviously he'd been pretty much on the bench most of his time at Leeds United under Howard Wilkinson. He'd had that chequered history in France. Were you as players in that dressing room, were you talking about it and thinking, crikey, this is a little bit desperate? Or had you seen, the, had you seen enough from his cameo appearances at Leeds to think you've got someone special here? Um, Bruce and Pally always were the ones who, um, were the ones who talked, talked about him. Hmm. Always talked about him um, to the boss. And I think the boss has said that in many statements. They're the ones who said it about him and I think the boss listens to players he ain't going to come out instant and say you're right mm. but over some point he'll you know he will come out and he'll talk about it and the players know mm. and he just he was different in the way he wanted to play Brucey wanted to always be up against a centre forward who wants to get physical and Brucey would would match him Eric didn't want to do that Eric could but didn't want to do it. He wanted to drop off and he wanted to look nice. He wanted to face the goal. And they found it difficult to get up against him as a centre forward. And while he was at Leeds, had Lee Chapman doing all that. And I don't think Lee Chapman complimented what Eric wanted to do. I don't think Leeds appreciated him in that sense, the way they were playing. They didn't appreciate his style. When he comes to United, we saw somebody and we appreciated and respected the way he played because of what he done mm. and and that's what it's about more than anything he could have come in he could have been the most horrible person off the pitch but when he got on the pitch and he treated you like teammates you got on with it whatever anyone else is off the pitch it doesn't make any difference but mm. with Eric he was he was different class on it as what he was off it right okay you scored in a 4-1 win against Spurs another lovely little one too 
I don't think I've ever seen you so happy. It was a very special goal, that. Yeah, I think that was more to the fact I was getting a bit of ribbing. There was a bet going on between me and Pally who was going to score the most goals. So when I got that, even when it was, it was quite early, I just felt Pally was never going to get anywhere near that because Pally was never going to go and score with his head in the opponent's box. It wasn't going to happen. So I always believed that I was going to pick up that 100 quid. Even then, I, I knew, I believed it was going to happen. And maybe one of the reasons I was smiling as well is because it might have been hiding embarrassment of the fact of it was a shocking celebration. <laughs> that, that might have been, I was mostly trying to smile my way out of it, hoping that no one would know. But I think Sharpie and Giggsy were the first ones to me. And definitely Sharpie would have, Sharpie would have said something in my ear about it because he, he was the king of celebrations and he would have mostly have told me was the effect of that was effing shite parks. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to do the old uh, corner flag routine following <clears throat> Lee shots. No, not me, no. I, I've got no rhythm. Like, I couldn't have done that. I'd have to do it like the old man in a pub with a lager top in his hand, that kind of dance. <laughs> um, but it looked like you might be blowing the title again. I think it was April the 10th, 1-0 down against Sheffield Wednesday with a couple of minutes to go. <clears throat> there must have been some serious pressure seeping through the team at the time. Did you think you'd blown it again? I think it was one of them. Then the boss had, the boss made his, made his big decision, the game-changing decision, really. What, um, I think it, you know, it made a big, big difference, and it involved me, really. He took me off. <laughs> and I think that's what he done. He took me off. And there was, a massive, there was a massive change in fortune. So I'm having that one. I'm claiming it. What anybody wants to say, say they can talk about Pally's crossing, Brucey coming in and scoring two headers, one from a corner and the other one from a pally cross, whatever. I think it was about me. That was under the defining point of why United went on and won that title, because I was off the field. I've got that kind of effect when I'm off, Richard. <laughs> well, talking about off the field, at the end of that season, I think you guys all went to South Africa, didn't you, to meet Nelson Mandela. I saw the team photo of that the other day with Nelson, and I saw that Steve Bruce made sure he got next to... Nelson Mandela in that team picture. Was that him all over? Was Steve Bruce one of those kind of busy players, as they say? Um, <clears throat> how am I going to put this? No, I'm going to say no. He's not. <clears throat> Brucey got there because at the end of the day, Brucey was captain, wasn't he? Captain, vice captain, whatever. Brucey, and, you know, and I think we was all like that. If it was, if, you know, if Brucey could have been gone wherever he's wanted, it was his. You know, he was kind of in a control in certain ways and it worked out that way. But I mean, it's a wonderful picture, that is. And I've got that somewhere. I just need to find it, the proper print of that one. Yeah. I've actually got an individual one, one of him as well, somewhere as well, which I need to go and find, you know, which yeah. is somewhere which people say, you should have that up. But I'm not one of those people, you know, as much as what he was, great to meet him. Um, I just, I'm just not one of those people. But seeing that picture again, it just brings back memories. Yes, I know he was a big boxing fan as a kid. He obviously got heavily involved in that Rugby Union World Cup 1995. Did you chat to him about football? Is he a fan? Not really. didn't really chat to him. I can't really remember a lot about that. I remember certain bits, but not about chat to him. Obviously, we all got introduced and we shook hands and, you know, went into their kind of parliament as such and went and saw him. But for, the, for Manchester United, it was big. It was a big time for United to be going there, the most popular team in South Africa. We played, played against the um, Kaiser Chiefs, which is a hell of an experience. They, they kept the ball for fun. They, had every, they, get, they didn't want to score goals. They wanted to do tricks. So we dropped back. 
we just dropped back and virtually sat on the edge of our box because there was a invo only about an hour in front there was it was their winter but it was about 70 degrees it was their winter and it was still a little bit of humid a little bit of humidity it was warm so we sat back because they was just doing tricks everywhere and their fans were going mad they were doing dr kiomba was one of their players their main player set the midfield and he was doing tricks everything i think somewhere i think jerry cottle wanted to sign him up somewhere along the line it was amazing and we and all of a sudden every time we just get the ball nick the ball counter-attack, bang, we go and score. And we're getting after the game. I think we won the game three or four nil in the end. And the boss gave us a right coating. He called us lazy because we sat back. He wasn't relating to the weather. And we tried to say to him, but he wasn't having it, the boss. We let ourselves down because we let them play all the football. The problem was that they, they didn't want to score a goal. The moment they threatened to score, that the fans would rather them do tricks with the ball rather than them score a goal. So I don't think the fans wanted them to beat Manchester United. Wow. But Ferguson's reaction, I suppose, that demonstrates and highlights the intensity that you need at Manchester United. And do you think that 93-94 side was comparable to the 99 and 2008 teams? Do you think it should be set alongside those two great teams? They're the three great teams of that Ferguson era? I think, they, I think they are to the United fans who watched those teams over that time. And as you know, the, the generations have, have forgotten all about 93, 94. They've forgotten about 92, 93. They've even forgotten about nine. When you talk, speak to the real United fans, they talk about ni 1991 more so than what they do 99. They see 91 as the one when they beat Barcelona as the one as the big one, rather than 99. 99 was big because, because of the treble. That's how a lot of them look at it. But the, the game was about the 91. That's, that's where they saw when the foundation was, was really set at that time. They're, that's what they talk about. And but going back to your initial bit is that I always believe the 93, 94, if you talk about technically up against the 99, you have to say there's maybe more technical players in there. But when you come to to grit and you talk about a team that could do both and go physical or go all football 93 94 definitely could do that just as well as 90 um the 1999 team when you think about some of the individuals who played in that team and you've got to remember Roy Keane signed as well that year he come in there and he made he made I would say just the biggest difference as what Eric made not seen as much because you're not seeing all the little tricks, the flicks, and he didn't. He, he wasn't as glamorous as what Eric was as a footballer, the way he looks, and he didn't dress like Eric. And Roy would always say, "Thank God he didn't." But Eric, you could put Eric in a black bin line, and and everyone would say he looked fashionable. But Roy turned up, and what Roy done is that he rejuvenated Incy because Incy suddenly wanted to prove to everybody that he was better than Roy. So every game we were playing, those two were trying to outdo each other. Not in a selfish way, but in the fact of you, both of them would want to be in the opponent's box and try and score a goal or make a goal. Both of them wanted to be winning the big headers, the big tackles in the opponent's, in, in our defending box. Both of them wanted to, to win, the, win the ball in midfield. Both of them wanted assists. They were having their own personal comp competition about who was the best. And it was a good competition as well. And it's only come to light to me <clears throat> in the last year or so when I think about when those two played together and how that midfield was they were physically stronger than most teams and then any team that was stronger than them physically in that midfield was never going to beat the, 
technically because they were both good footballers mm. and there was never going to beat them physically because both of them could keep running and running and running. And the reason why they could keep running and running and running because they was never going to allow anyone to ever go past them or to last longer than them. Mm. Both of them hated to lose. Hated him. They're an incredible pair. And Paul Lynch must have seen Roy Keane as a threat as well to his self-proclaimed governor status. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was. He, that's, that's the way he was. And he, he was that way. He wanted to be the number one. Everything about him was that way. And that's not being derogatory. That's, that's saying about how someone is so single-minded about what they want. And if you're not single-minded in a team sport, then, then to be honest, you, you have to be. You have to be single-minded to be a great golfer and a great tennis player. Like in football, you have to be single-minded, but you have to share a little bit of it. Grab a little bit of someone else and say, I'm going to help you out a little bit. And that's what Paul Wintz done. And if Paul Wintz helped you out because you weren't doing your job properly, God help you. Incy was, um, Roy was exactly the same. God help you if they come across and helped you out because they would let you know on the pitch. They would let you know off the pitch. They would let you know in the next training session. They would let you know the day before the next game. They would actually say, do you need help today? Because I helped you out last time. It wouldn't let you forget. It's great now. It was tough at the time. Yeah. I'll be brilliant to have those kind of characters. Just finally on that, are you a fan of Roy Keane as a pundit, telling it like it is? Um, I have to say yes, in certain ways. Other ways, I'd say I'd grimace a bit. But because I know Roy and the way he is, I'd, I'd have to say yes, because he, he, you know, he, he isn't going to go out there and be, you know, analyse everything and be deep thinking. He's going to say what, you know, what's in his head. And Roy can hold a lot in his head. Roy's got a great memory about things. He'll remember everything and he'll bring it out and he'll say it. And you'll never question him because of, he's right. Mm. That's the way, somewhere along the line, he might get it wrong. At this moment in time, he's, he gets it right. People like it. People want to hate him. But if you was to meet him and you went up to him and you introduced yourself to him, Roy be as not be as as right as rain, but he, he won't take any he won't take any crap from anybody. If you want to be go up to him and be rude, Roy would be rude back and maybe ruder, but he would mostly say something that you're not gonna like. But he wouldn't have to be rude he wouldn't be in the derogatory manner of saying it, but he'll say something that'll be quite quite astute and clever to be perfectly honest. And that, that's the way he is. Roy is there in front of you what's written on the can, to be perfectly honest, and it mostly hasn't helped him to get back into management as such, because I'm sure there's a lot of players who are worried about him. But if you're right with Roy, he'll always be right with you. Yeah, no, interesting perspective. Now, when we were growing up, Parks, the FA Cup final was the biggest game of the season. So how special was 1994 against Chelsea? It's what, it's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to play an FA Cup final. But then I'd, by then, I'd done it. <clears throat> I always I knew then that it wasn't the biggest game of a footballer's career. The most important thing to, for me to win as a, as a player is a league title over that duration of time. That's why the marathon, or you can talk about, say, the 10,000 metres on the track, <clears throat> are maybe the greatest races to win, because it's about mind over matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so I realised that it meant it was a fantastic, but the thing that made the cup final was it was that cherry on top of the cream. That's what it was about. It was about <clears throat> that bit, getting a double. Should have been a treble because of the League Cup final that season. But that yeah, wasn't happening. But it was just the fact of 
being involved in history of Manchester United winning their first double. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you lost to Aston Villa, I think, in the League Cup final that season. Yeah. Then you, then you missed 94-95 with injury. We've talked about 95-96 and that was kind of winding down your United career. So Jim Smith came in for you at Derby County. Why did, why did it not work out there at Derby? Um, <clears throat> I wonder, first of all, I'm going to say, I wonder if I was right, but then I'd initially turned them down on a contract because Marseille come in. Okay. So Marseille. Yeah, I'd done, a, I'd done a trial at Marseille. They wanted to check my fitness and everything. It was all fine. My agent at a given time got a little bit greedy. <clears throat> so he um, done a deal behind, behind my back I wasn't aware of until I was at the airport flying home. So that quashed the deal. So you go back cap in hand. <clears throat> it doesn't work the same way second time around. So a two-year deal turned to three months. And working under those circumstances, I struggled really. I really struggled to get my head around it. To get and maybe didn't do myself justice in that sense. I enjoyed Derby. I, I liked it there. Decent club, big club, decent people. But it was it wasn't to be, to be honest. And I look at that whole twelve months after I left Manchester United, and have to say, once that Marseille thing fell down, which I had a buzz about doing, I had a big buzz. Everything was about to go. I got the opportunity after I missed out before for injury of going going overseas. I thought this is going to be brilliant to go to such a massive club in Marseille. And I think I lost my edge in the end. I lost that drive to want to play football. That's really interesting. I didn't know about the Marseille thing all mm. the time I've, I've known you. And that could have given you that little lift because leaving Manchester United, you know, if you stay in England, it's never going to be as good, is it? But I suppose if you do go abroad, then it's a new challenge and a completely new environment. So all of a sudden, instead, you've got a few months at Derby, then you have a few months at Sheffield United. So it was all starting to, it was all starting to be a kind of strange ending to your career. What, why move on to Sheffield United so soon? Um, because they just come in and, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat for someone, can't get rid of it. Um, Howard, Kendall, Howard Kendall was there and I thought to myself, yep, I can get on with here, but it, wasn't, it, it just wasn't right, really. I wasn't. I wasn't doing myself justice. Um, the the club was just was. I think wasn't right in a certain way as well. It just didn't. It just was. It just wasn't there. I was. I was living in a hotel. No, I was. I shouldn't. Shouldn't have been there. I should have been at home. Should have been back at home, <coughs> doing you know, my mind on something more positive, really. Yeah. And not not kidding myself that I could get it going now. Yeah. We, we talked about going home. You did. You went back to Fulham. All of a sudden, you look like you're winding down your career in the fourth tier. Why did you go to Fulham? Was it nice to be home? Were you just helping them out? Yeah, it was about helping them out. I got asked by one of the directors who was, who was actually there when I left the club. He asked me to come back, but it wasn't going to be with a manager. The manager didn't really want me there. He, was make, he made it difficult for me, and he, he actually tried to embarrass me in front of the players in a training session, and and then, and then, then even then, he he let me go in front of one of my old old teammates, a lad who I grew up with as well. He was a coach there. He pulled him in there as well and tried to do that as well. No, what, it what, wasn't. What happens? This is Mickey Adams, isn't it? What did he do yeah. to you on the training ground? Well, he, he he's on about. I always went out and warmed up in bottoms and took them off. He said, "No one's no one wears bottoms here except me." I just said, "I'm just going to warm up in them." He said, "Well." 
He said, no, only, only I do. And I went, I kind of actually said, what's the problem? I said, I, I know you do. I said, but it's for me, it's the way I am. It's what I, it's what I do. And the moment I said, well, no, I'm not going to do, you know, it, it just, I did, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And so it, it wasn't going to be his way. And, he's, and him being a manager and doing, and me questioning him, he felt that I had to, that was my time up. He, he didn't want me there anyway, to be perfectly honest. From day one, I knew he didn't want me there. So I just stepped away. I weren't going to cause an argument. It was a club that a club that I grew up with and I weren't going to um, maybe disappoint a lot of people by maybe letting myself down. I, I would have let myself down and I just didn't want to be doing that to full-on football club, really. Do you think he feared you coming in as an experienced and successful professional? Did he think you had one eye on the manager's job? I don't see how because my, that wasn't in my mindset to be perfect. As I was coming back and I was trying to get my mojo back to be perfectly honest. And he wasn't allowing me. He was making it very, very uncomfortable. And I was just trying to get that, you know, get that back. It was like, like to take your own kit and train your own kit. And I was trying to get back all my good, get all the habits I'd grown up with, trying to get that all back, to be honest, after being pampered for so long. I was driving all the way round to the other into Surrey to go train him, and he wasn't helping. It, it was he had taken away my enjoyment. I wasn't enjoying going there, so I just thought to myself, if I'm not enjoying it, I've got to get out of it because all I'm going to do is just going to first and foremost, I'll be letting myself down, and then secondly, I'll be letting down people, I'll be letting down players, so and the football club. So why bother? Yeah. So how on earth do you get kind of plucked from that situation in the fourth division? to suddenly be in the Premier League again for Chelsea under Rude Hulley? Um, Gwyn Williams was the... i known Gwyn Williams from when he... I think he was a youth team coach at Chelsea. I got to know him from when I when he was youth team. And he'd always been around and around West London. And he ran me at one time. He just sent me Paul. Um, we're in the FA Cup, whatever. Quarterfinals, semi-final. I think it was the quarterfinals. Um... We've got a lot of games coming up. We've got suspensions and all that all hanging. We need you just to come in and just to be a body. Um, this is what we're going to pay you. Um, just come around and just be around and, and go from there. And that's all it was. That is all it was. There was no promises or anything. Didn't expect anything. And, and, that's, and that's what I went and done. I got asked by Gwyn Williams to go and do it and I've done it. Yeah. And your last appearance as a pro was against Arsenal. Did you know that that was the end? Did you have any aspirations to carry on after that 96-97 season? No, not, not at all, really. I think I kidded myself a little bit. I wanted to, but I didn't. I didn't have to drive anymore. Everything had gone from me. And I'm one of them that I weren't going to go and do that because I'd have been letting down people around me. I got offers from a few local teams in this area. And I didn't want to do it because I just couldn't. I just couldn't get the drive to want to train or to play. Um... Rude Hullet, he didn't endear himself to me as a manager. Loved and respected him as a footballer. You wouldn't get many better. Even in today's football, there isn't any could get anywhere near him as a footballer. But as a manager, didn't really cut it for me. I just didn't like what I was seeing there as well. It kind of put me off the way the club was. And no, nope, Chelsea have moved on to different and better things now from when Rude Hullet was the manager. And that's why they've had that, you know, that, that wave of success because they moved on as a football club. They they got that bit right in what they were doing. So was it just a bit of arrogance or something around the time? 
yeah, there was a lot of arrogance with him and the way he treated a lot of the English, the British players. He wasn't the nicest around them, in my opinion, or the way he was. And I didn't, didn't like it. Went to the cup final and that was me done, to be perfectly honest. That was it. Didn't, didn't really say goodbye to anybody. Didn't wait to be told anything. As far as I'm concerned, I knew my time was up and no one was going to tell me. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Well, the time when you really did have your mojo, forget about that season, was England, of course. Um, you go into 1990, not a regular player by any means. You'd been getting into the squads. I think you were rooming with David Rocastle, weren't you, at the time when the squad of 27-28 was being called to 22. So when Bobby Robson knocked on the door, were you thinking it might be you who was going to be sent home? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I just when you, yeah, anyone would have done. You saw him there. Maybe if I'd have been logical about it, I'd have realised that it couldn't have been me. But um, but um, then he just gave me the um, the kind of a, I want to say the curly finger, but it was more kind of it was more abrupt than that. Really, in other words, get out. I'm kind of okay. Lucky enough, I was changed to that. <clears throat> and yeah, he when I kind of stood in the stood in the um what's it called the reception area, which weren't the biggest at Burnham Beaches. It was a quaint little hotel, so it wasn't the biggest. And um, I think a few players would have come in and what are you doing in here? And I kind of said to them what was what happened, and then every everyone knew what the next bit was, and that was a that was a hard day. Mm. Hard day because I just assumed that me and Rocky were going to be rooming in Italy as we always, always um as we always said. That was Nick. You saw Nick. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Nick. You're right. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you, darling. Good to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> Thank Sorry. you. You're right. <laughs> um, right. Getting back to you. yeah. So it was it was difficult with um Rocky when he was going because we. You know, we'd been talking about, you know, going to Italy and sharing a room and that. It was, you know, for me, it was, it would, it would have just made it and made everything. In a way, the thing, the way it worked, everything worked out. It would have been brilliant. You know, Rocky was like a regular, wasn't he, during that build-up towards that. Played a lot of games, a lot of qualifying games. It was, you know, for me, it was there. So then to go back in the room and then you see him the way he was and typical. of I think anybody was strong and he, he held it in. He was very emotional, Rocky, anyway, and his sense in the way he was. He was always one ringing up his young daughter, Melissa, always on the phone when she was a little baby. or talk to her in baby talk down the phone. I didn't have to go out so I knew that it didn't, I knew that it wouldn't have embarrassed, it didn't embarrass him, me being there. I knew exactly what I was going to have to go through every time he'd speak to, his, speak to his, um, his wife, Janet, and then speak to Melissa, his little baby, on the phone. And then to go in there and he's packing up and he's left and um, I walked out of him. I carried a bag out to his car, which is, um, I'm struggling here just thinking about it now as well. Yeah. So um, it, it, was, it was really tough just, just watching him, just, you know, just him just going off like that. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a nice feeling. I, I shouldn't really care because I knew I was going, but I, I cared because of my person at the time, my roommate, the person who I spent a lot of my time traveling around for all the qualifying games. You know, spent sharing a room together in Albania, where virtually we'd have been more, we'd have been more comfortable and felt cleaner in a junkyard. You know, and all those little, all those little things we'd done together and laughed together, and 
when we played games, the home games, Rocky would bring the um, the brandy and baby jam. I'd bring cans of beer and stuff like that. You know, it was just all those little memories. And then all of a sudden, it didn't materialise into facts of maybe, you know, it worked out rooming with someone for about five weeks. Who did you room with instead? Steve Hodge. Completely different. Yeah. Completely different. <laughs> In a good or bad way? Uh, I'm going to say completely different. <laughs> Well, uh, the first game of that World Cup was literally the worst game of football I've ever seen. It was England one, Ireland one, wasn't it? Steve McMahon made the mistake, another one of our former colleagues, like Kevin Sheedy. And so you end up coming in to replace Gary Stevens, which was a bit of a shock. There's been a lot of rumour and a lot of conjecture about how this transformation to a 3-5-2 system for the Holland game came about. Was it the players forcing it? Or was it Bobby Robson and Don Howe who initially came up with it? I'm going to have to say that it definitely weren't the players. Bobby Robson would never have allowed that. As much as people want to see him in a certain light, there's no way the players were ever going to tell him what he's going to be doing. He could have manipulated in the way that maybe the players did, but they were never going to know that he wanted their opinion that much to make a decision and doing what they wanted to do. But he asked an opinion, and I think the opinion was, and mostly in his head, that the Dutch had an incredible midfield where ball retention was key. And the idea of it, really, to switch it, was the fact, switch to what he did, was to have enough bodies around there to make it difficult for them to do that. Was you going to stop it 100%? No, because they were that good, technically that good, and they had continuity in in that midfield as well. So, you, you know, the way they shifted it around was second and none at that given time. So it's about having enough bodies around there to break up the play and then to, to really get to get at their back three, really, mm. um, which didn't have a great deal of pace. And it worked in a certain way. It worked. I mean, we had two goals disallowed, if I remember mm. rightly. I think one was a handball and the other one was offside, if I remember. But it worked. It, it really worked out well for Bobby Robson in that way. And, and the fact the fact of he... He listened to his senior pros. He was an old school manager and he listened to the opinions of his senior pros. Mm. I mean, were they 100% right and did he take anything in? Only only one person knows that answer and we're never going to find it out now. But they, the players definitely had a say on what, on what happened with the England team. Mm. You know, when I say senior players, I was talking Gary Lineker, Peter Shelton, Terry Butcher and Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson, sorry. Yeah. Brian Robson. Yeah. They were, they were the main ones and you had the main state. And after that, and the, the second committee might have been Chris Waddle, John Barnes and um, Peter Beersley. Yeah. Well, there were lots of senior players, top players. But at the time, that kind of formation just wasn't played much to the extent that you couldn't... Commentators wouldn't call it a sweeper system. They wouldn't call it a back three they'd have to always refer to it as a continental sweeper system because it was so different. So how much did you work on that new shape and how much did you relish playing as a right wing back? Playing right wing back was new to me because I hadn't even been a right back for so many years because I was always playing as a, as a, as a marker in a free at the back at QPR or as a sweeper. So I wasn't, so playing as a wing back was something new. There was a different objective in the game really. But um, we hadn't done a lot of work on it. It wasn't anything rigorous on it. What was going to do? It was just, it was just about. He relied on you. You know, he relied on me and those players, the three at the back and Stuart Pearce. 
to actually to get on and do our job. Me, me and Pearcey was in there as people to break the play up. You know, teams that play free at the back now are looking for those players to constantly be joining in and wing backs. We were playing full backs, but further forwards because mm. it was about us trying to trying to stop their wide players getting forward to hold them back, to affect them to their crosses, to be there with their movement. And in certain ways, it was trying to, trying to destroy, if I'm going to be truthful about it. But the difference was that Bobby Robson didn't want to do that. He still wanted to create. He wanted to win games. And when you've got someone like Gary Lineker on the pitch and you've got a Chris Waddle or you've got a Peter Beersley, or dare I say it, and he's last of all, and you've got a Paul Gascoigne, there is always going to be there's always going to be creation after something's been destroyed, so it was quite positive in, in what he'd done going in that way, because he knew that he had to take something from Holland to go into that game against Egypt. So it's important not to lose two games on the bounce. Otherwise, mm. it would have made it very very difficult in the Egypt game, and more than anything, it would have given the press even more to go out as well. Well, the, the newspapers were giving you absolute pelters, weren't they? I've seen quite a bit of the footage where you're ripping up newspapers and the, they gave Bobby Robson an absolute toweling before the tournament. Did that help bring the players together in a kind of almost siege mentality? And what do you remember of those kind of six weeks together as a group, all on top of each other? Um, I, I mean, it's a difficult one to say. <clears throat> I think we all realised what was going on. We all appreciated and respected Bobby Robson. We knew he was going through a tough time. There was a personal thing going on as well, which he was, the press were going for him as well. And it, it wasn't easy for him. And whenever you saw him walking around, he had his hands on his head and he was a deep thinker, maybe in certain terms. He was a worrier as well about things on the football side of it because he wanted to achieve, given everything he wanted to achieve, he wanted England to win a World Cup. Easy to say because everyone should say, of course he should do, but he did. And I think people realise that it's just a shame he never got recognised exactly what he was all about until after he had gone. Yeah. And when I say gone, I mean after 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 he left the FA, after the FA forced him out in that situation. Because if he'd had a second go at it, maybe it could have been his time to go and do it. Maybe not with the same players, but I'm sure he would he could have got a lot more out of it than what happened just after, especially the Euros after that. But while we while we was there, it was it was it was it was fantastic. People now talk about oh, here the players are. I don't want the players to get bored. We didn't get bored because we talked to each other. We laughed and joked. We didn't need things. We didn't need devices in our hands to to communicate. And if nothing was going on, suddenly shut down and not talk because I didn't. There was nothing going on on the device. We, we, we had a games room where we sat in and we laughed and joked. We had a swimming pool. Players were, had, you know, going, some were playing golf. So we just chatted and we listened to stories. We avoided Gaza. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was a game on its own. But, um, yeah, we, we did that. We communicated and people, some players would say something. Someone would say something stupid. So we'd laugh at, laugh at it on the dinner table when someone had done something stupid as as work colleagues do when someone makes a fool of himself. You had the Glasgow Rangers boys who did have, had dinner but had everything in reverse in the sense of they started with their um, afters. They even dressed everything backwards as well. They turned all their clothes around as well in the dining table. Some of the FA committee weren't happy with that, but saying that we weren't happy with them. One of them, get, one of them has to go home because he drunk himself into obliteration. 
Oh, he drunk himself to. Oh, he was a ridiculous one of them. He was he was shaking at the end with so much booze inside of him. One of the FA dignitaries. Yes. Yeah, I would have just said committee. I wouldn't go by putting that bit at the end of it. But yeah, he had to he had to go back. He drunk. Yeah, ridiculous. So we we you know we was laughing at them because they were being disrespectful to our boss, and so we was laughing at them. We was taking a rise out of them, to be perfectly honest, because they were going around and they were sponging. Sponging everything, you know, they was all turning up, didn't know really in theory anyone personally, never didn't want to get didn't want to get to know everybody. They thought they're better because they had nice blazers, you know. We had um we had top shop top shop suits in the great yeah. and like they had their you know England blazers on, you know, and stuff, but you know, we just got we just got on with it because we had respect for the man in charge. Yeah. And I think uh, Peter Shilton and Gary Lineker were doing some racing nights, weren't they? They were the bookies. Yeah, they were the bookies. Let me try and pull it. What happened there? What did they do? I mean, they cheated. <laughs> yeah, they cheated. They fixed it. They knew what's going to win. And yeah, they, I think they, I'm trying to think who they stitched up. They stitched someone up. I don't know if it was Gaza or something. I don't know, but they, they stitched someone up on it. And so, yeah. So they were putting on old horse races, weren't they, which they knew the results to, was that it? And they were being the bookies. Yeah, yeah. They were stitching people up, yeah. <laughs> That's what they're doing. And it was just that old, you know, when you think about it, it's old school. And, but it was, it was in this way, but it, at a given time, it was just men communicating with each other. We, if you didn't talk, if you sat there and you didn't talk to anybody, you, people would look and question you. Yeah. You know, as they, as the saying goes now, it's good to talk and we talk to each other. Yeah. That's what we've done, Richard, you know. You, you had something to say, you say it. You've been on the phone and you have a story. You come back with a story to tell everybody. Not suddenly be on the phone and you're, you're texting all the time. And you had to do it. Yeah. You know, and, and people, at the end of the day, if you had a mobile phone, you, you mostly couldn't afford to text. Because every time you pushed in, a, a letter was mostly costing you a quid. Yeah, and Terry Butcher also called it a bit of a drinking World Cup, but obviously at the right time. So I imagine you had a few nights out. Were, were there any special nights out that you remember? No, I didn't. No, I didn't go out. There was a little small little crew who went out, and they were generally of the experienced players, and a few other, a few of them jumped onto it, but I didn't. I did because even I went there. I was still like, I hadn't never, I hadn't cemented a place in a team, but I'd been in a squad since '88. You know, beginning of eight hours, been been around, done a lot of travelling, sat, sat in the stands, been on the bench. But I, I didn't see myself as one of them to go and do that. That wasn't really me at that given time. So mm. I wasn't going to jump on the back of it because I think Bobby Robson would have been one of the. He mostly knew it was going on, but he he knew the senior players. He knew he could trust them. Mm. I felt I, I I thought I'd just got over the line. I've just got in the squad. I didn't want to be seen as me being one of them to go and do that and we talk about we go back to the Holland game as far as I'm concerned that was my that was my first appearance in the World Cup that was my that was my first competitive start in an England shirt and to suddenly go out and be doing all that you know I didn't think I'd be playing the next game because the next game I knew he would have gone back to a 4-4-2 I didn't know I was playing so that wasn't me yeah. even as it went on still didn't get involved in it. Oh, fair play. Now, we'd shown flashes of what a good side we could be. Holland, definitely. Bits in the Egypt game and the Belgium and Cameroon games. But it all came together in that Germany game. I've watched the game back and we were fantastic that day. But 
How many years would it take Peter Shilton to save a German penalty, do you think? Um, I'll be honest, I'm, I watched that. I watched about 80 line now. I watched about 110 minutes of that semi-final. Um, but I still haven't watched the penalties. I still can't. It's a waste of time because, alluding to what you're saying, I still know he's never gonna. He's never gonna save one. I know that he's always gonna save that he went the right way. But it doesn't mean he's going to become Stretch Armstrong and get his arm now. So I've given up on that thought of him ever saving one. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> and it isn't going to happen, Richard. So I'm I'm going to say this to you once only. I want you to stop watching it, thinking that he's going to believe, <laughs> thinking he, and believing he's going to save one because it's not going to happen. Well, I think he should have saved uh, their goal that came off you. Of course, it was wobbling backwards. But did you have a word with him after? No, not not really. No, it's just what that moment really. No, no. not at all. Nothing. Everyone's got their opinion about. Him. You see me. He takes half half a yard forward. He steps forward, I should say, and then trying to spring back. We have to remember he was forty years of age. I think the only goalkeeper who's gone in that, I think, was um, Buffon, wasn't it? Did Buffon. I think Dino Zoff did it in '82, didn't he? He lifted the trophy. But yeah, yeah. Zoff was. I mean. Zoff was a, was completely different, was he? Zoff had, was a lot young, younger in body, I should say. Yeah. And just finally on that, where would you have been in the sudden death penalty taking rankings? After Peter Shaw. <laughs> Not for you. I wanted to ask you about your post-England uh, World Cup career. It was bizarre. Graham Taylor came in. Did he ever speak to you and, and make you feel like you were part of it or tell you why that maybe... He didn't have you in mind for that right-back role? Um, he, he told me that he left me out. He wasn't playing me because since I went to United and I was passing a lot of balls into midfield and he liked Lee Dixon because Lee Dixon got the ball forward quicker than what I did. And to be honest, I could have, I could have gone forward. Could have gone, I could have gone into Mark Hughes quite a lot. The only problem is that those players in midfield would have got me out of the team. Yeah. That was the difference, you know. And, and that's the reason why I didn't play under him. And to be honest, and it was such a big change and I'd been spoilt. And even with my involvement after, I went on a trip to prove my fitness in 91. I went, we went Malaysia, sorry, yeah. No, he went to New Zealand, sorry, Australia, New Zealand, then back to Malaysia playing mm. games. Two in New Zealand, one in Oz, one in Malaysia. And even on that trip, I was, I was begging my agent to get me home, begging my. It was, I'd been, I'd been on a trip. I went on the best trip ever, as a, as an England player. And I went to Italy, and I went on a, a trip of England to those three countries, and it's my worst ever football trip. Worst right. ever. It was just everything was just awful, not not good at all. And there was people who were working for the FA who'd been out there as well. And they were working under different people, and you could see. No, it was a massive change for them. It was a big change for me as a player, and I'd, I'd only been a short time as a player under Sir Bobby in that sense. So been like through the groups, through the group stages, and then went to a tournament. These people have been doing it for a lot of years, and they've been players who've done it for a lot of years. And there was a people had gone beyond raising eyebrows. What was going on? It was. It just wasn't comfortable, to be perfectly honest. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, 
you know, it's sad as well, isn't it? You know, I know a few players retired after the World Cup, but then we still got to Euro 92. It's almost like the forgotten tournament. But how many right-backs would have had to get injured, do you think, before Graham Taylor would have given you the nod? And was the final straw Keith Curl coming in at right-back? Oh, um, Christ am I. I mean, you ask me a question there and you're throwing Keith <laughs> Curl. So I think I might have just given up then. Anyway, I think Curly was surprised as well because Curly would say to himself he could never play right-back. Not in a million years. He was never going to be comfortable at right-back. But Graham Taylor knew what he was going to get out of him as a player. He definitely was going to get pace. He was going to get power. But he was always going to go someone who was going to maybe going to look a little bit longer than going short. Mm. You know, the midfield players weren't really built for short. Gazza was maybe the only one who'd want it off a full-back, off a centre-half. But even then, Gazza would have been struggling. Terry Venables got the best out of Gazza. Mm. After, you know, after, after Sir Bobby, really. So um, it was just such a shame, really, that there was a change, a, ch a change in personnel off the pitch, a change in personnel on the pitch as well, and all the fluency that had been um, gained by Sir Bobby had been lost because uh, there was a complete change in personnel, a complete change in style of play, and everything was lost. Mm. And just finally on England, you did get a sniff under Terry Venables. Do you think you would have played more under him without the injury? Or do you think yes. Gary Neville's time had come? Or No, I, I definitely would have done without injury. I knew that Terry always liked me. I don't know if he 100% forgave me for turning down Spurs and going to Manchester United. I'm sure he would have done. But um, yeah, without a doubt, he called me up for his first game. That meant everything to me. But after that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't bounce off the back of it. I got an injury in that game against Germany. It was nine, um, was it in, was it 91? When was that? Tell you about 90, sorry, yeah. 91 was it, but 94 was the Denmark game. Yeah, when I played for him and, and I wasn't, yeah. It, it just wasn't, it, it wasn't meant to be. And the moment Gary got, got his run at United, it was obvious that Terry had to bring him in. It's mm. as simple as that. And Gary went from strength to strength got involved in some great things of England as well as Manchester United. Yeah. Well, you had a little dabble at management yourself, Chelmsford and Welling. How did you get involved with non-league football and how did you find it down there? Did you enjoy it? Oh, um, I did enjoy it. I mean, I've been involved with it since my, my great mate is a fellow called Tommy South, who was, um, he was owner of Perfleet, who then become Furrock. And they initially was a... Um, a Sunday side had become a Saturday side. He'd gone and brought a hotel. He brought an old school, an old grammar school, just on, um, just in Thurrock, just by the M25 roundabout. And um, I got to know him from when I was living in Perfleet in 1987. I used to go in there and use their gym during pre-season, me and Dean Coney did. So I got to know him from there, and he went from there, started to watch his team play, and I started just watching non-league. And I just loved the camaraderie after a game on a Saturday. They'd all go in the bar and have a drink and they'll chat and chat and go. And it was brilliant just seeing all the players there together. The manager, in his own way, would become a player. But we'd be with his kind of like gang. And, and I really enjoyed it. So I spent years. And whenever I was coming back, even and Tommy would Tommy follow me everywhere. When Tommy even come out to the World Cup with me. He'd come out and watch him play out there. I got him out there. He travelled around initially, all the group games, he was in Sardinia, he was everywhere. And then the moment when it got to the stage, you can bring friends and family, then 
I got Tommy into that bit to come to get involved on that side. So as it went on, I started to watch games, more games when I come back home at weekends and go and watch his, if we didn't have a game, and go and watch his team play. And then after then, when I stopped playing, I still was still going to watch games. And then I got involved with a team called Ashford Town out of Kent as a director of football. God knows what I was supposed to do, but I had that title. And then while I was there, I met the chairman of Chelmsford and then he asked me, come along and get involved with Chelmsford. I said to him, are you going to tell the manager? He goes, oh, no, don't worry, just come along and get involved. So the manager at the time was a, was, um, fellow called Gary Bellamy, who played for Wolves yeah. and Leighton Orient, centre-half. Mm. So I got in with him and Gary was a, was a bit of a loner in the way he'd done things. He was a lone wolf. and So he didn't really have an assistant. So I went as the assistant and it took me a while, but he got to, to trust me and know me that I wasn't a chairman's man. And he got, you know, to try, and he knew that I was just there as his assistant and just to take a bit off him. Gary done a lot himself. And I was just there, just just learning more than anything. And being around footballers was great at Chelmsford City. I loved it. My local team as such in Essex and thoroughly enjoyed it. If any opportunity come, Gary would step down for me to be manager. The chairman came up to me and said to me, do you want the job? And I kind of went, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if I want to be a manager. And he said, why? I said, because I quite like being involved with the players and the players. I just I looked at I look at Brian Kidd and I saw Brian Kidd when I was at United, and all of us loved Brooke Kiddo, great coach, great man, respected by everybody. He's a United great, and I wanted to be like him, that kind of thing. And he just said to me, "Well, if you turn down this job, maybe one of the biggest non-league clubs in the country, I think I'll have to see you as one of the biggest wankers I've ever met." So I went, "I'll have the job." Straight after that, he said that to me, and it was the best decision I've made. Um, in, involving as that as, as me being an ex-player by going to do that because it opened my eyes up to managing people which I would say I wasn't good at because I didn't want to make those decisions I didn't want players hating me for not playing them very good I had a good chairman who'd done all the monetary side and left me you know but to go and do but because my budget was quite low. My man, my chairman was judging me on what I was achieving off the budget. Yeah. And he saw what I was doing as great. Yeah. Because of what we was doing was overachieving. Was, I, mean, I couldn't go, if I said to him, I can get this player at 60 quid a week, I can get him 60 quid a week. I'll tell you what, I'll make a difference. I'll give you 50% myself out of my wages to cover it because I need him. He goes, not going to do that, Paul. And you're not going to put your wages in. I'll pay your wages and your wages is going direct to you. And I'm not going to pay that. There's my budget. You work off that. At the moment, you want to try and do anything like that. I'll see that as wrong. And then I'll be judging you earning loads of money. And that's what he done. And absolutely brilliant yeah. what he done to me. Because I just, I wanted to win games. I still wanted to win and try and show people I can do it. And we get to an Essex Cup final. I win the Essex Cup the first time in a long, long time. He decides to step down. The vice chairman comes in. Don't. I know he doesn't like me. He wants. He doesn't want me around. I resign at the presentation night. There. I resign that evening. He brings in a manager who I thrashed in the Essex Cup final. We beat him five nil. He brings him in. That I go to Welling, just over the bridge, in Kemp. I become their manager. We're in the same league. 
Then there's the divide coming up. The, um, we're in the Southern Premier. The divide's coming up for Conference South and North. So, and which is, I think it's the top eight who, yeah. go, who, who, who make the cut out of the Southern Premier to go through. The bonus was, I'm managing Welling United. I make the cut, chomps are done. Nice. So, nice. And then I'm... after, then I go the following season and I don't enjoy it. Why Real not? Day. Um, I think because of, it was tough that, that doing what I was doing. I was going to a, a different, um, I was more comfortable managing my local team. I felt it was me. I was kind of, it meant more to me. And I was going there and it, it wasn't grabbing me. It didn't, didn't have, weren't meaningful. It, it was just like a job. And, I, and I'm always one of them, Richard. If it's just a job, I've got to get out of it. So I'm not going to give 100%. I'm just there picking up money. Mm. So I did it. I got, and it, things weren't going the way I wanted. I, I'd lost my assistant. Sadly, he passed away. My assistant who I had at Chelmsford. So I bring in Liam Daish who surprisingly lost his job at Haven and Waterlooville, where he'd done brilliant. Liam comes with my assistant, fantastic. Great, great bloke, lovely. I'm glad I got to know him because whenever I was up against him when he was a manager, frightened the life out of me. But as a person, he's lovely, a great man. Soft, soft inside, but takes a lot to get there. And it wasn't working out. And I just went up to the owners and I said, it was a family-run club then. And I said, it ain't working out. I said... I think I'm not, I'm not putting enough in. I'm not really getting it across what I want because I'm not enjoying it. He said to me, Paul, ring me tomorrow morning. Have a think about it, but don't, don't be hasty. I woke up at about five that morning. I'm walking around. I'm in, I'm in the room I'm in now. It's changed since then, but I'm in the room I'm in now, walking about pacing, saying to myself, I can't do it, can't do it. I rang him up and I said, it must have been about seven o'clock. I said, Graham, I can't do it. All right, and Paul, let's... Um, Okay, well, all right, you made your mind up. We're going to have to talk about compensation. I said, yeah, we can talk about it. I said, don't worry about it. Yeah. You said, you're, um, I said I'm, not going to I'm not going to take any money. I'm not, what am I going to take money for? I'm, I'm walking away. I said, I'm, I'm doing you a favour. I said, all you've got to do for me is promise that you give Liam the job and Liam will do a really good job. Liam Day's done a wonderful job, an incredible job from where they were. He's he done absolutely brilliant. And I think the worst mistake Welling made is that they didn't keep him on. I helped Liam get the job at Gravesend and Northley. I think he took him to two trophy finals. Mm. He done absolutely fantastic for him. So um, I'm, you know, I'm pleased about that. But again, my if I'm not enjoying something, I, I can't be. I can't do it, Richard. I can't give a hundred percent. I just don't ever want to feel like I've let people down or I'm taking advantage. I want to go and know that when that person leaves my side or that person goes home, they know that I've, that I've justified what I'm being paid. Yeah. Well, at least you have a, you had a go at it and you found out and then you got into the punditry and the media side of stuff. And I think I could tell you were really enjoying the Satanta stuff, you know, doing a, a lot of their non-league coverage as well as other stuff. Yeah. And then we talked about your time in Singapore. So just finally tell us what you're doing now, media-wise and also outside interests. Um, well, media-wise, I do a lot of work for um, BBC London and Talk Sport. Um, go to a few games, but do a lot of it in the studios which is fine which I quite enjoy just being around it just being around football going to see people as well to going to games and seeing ex-pros and seeing old media people and you know when I talk about old I'm talking about the likes of Henry Winter about Martin Samuels all the ones I knew before 
I would normally have said Steve Stammers, but he sadly passed away just recently as well. But just seeing all those faces I knew from years, and it's wonderful to go and still be involved in football and just chat about, as you do, as you get to a certain point, days, days gone by. But what I'm in, I've got myself involved in now is um, it's involved in a bit of horse racing. It's, um, it's about people buying shares in horses. And I don't mean it's, it's, it's the new way of doing it. You're not throwing out thousands and thousands in front of you and going, there you go. And it's vet bills. This is a, this is a club. It's a, it's a business sports network. That's what it boils down to. And everybody, as a, you buy a two-year contract and you have a percentage in a horse and you're mixing with other business people involved, who have got the same percentage and in that, involving that package is all the usual bits because next to our stables, which are down in Stockbridge, which is Hampshire, is a vineyard. So you come to people, we all for, op, operate corporate days. You can go into the vineyard, to the stables, to the gallops. You get involved in days, evenings out, you know, like the LMA, going to have tables and boxes at football grounds. We've got golfers involved, so there may be golf days out. We've got packages that include playing at all the best courses in the country, in the world, because we get a great, a, incredible rate from a, a, a golf club. On the football side, we've got um, involved is Terry Venables, Terry Venables, sorry, Terry Butcher, who's got a horse named after him. It's called um, Butcher of Stockholm. <laughs> after, after all that claret in that World yeah. Cup qualifier. Yeah, I've got my own horse named after me, which I was named by Bobby Robson. It's called Tackles Like a Ferret. <laughs> just, spoke, just spoke with Jonathan Davis as well. Okay. So it's about getting as many sports people involved and then business people then can, in, can integrate with sports people as well as business people. And it's just like a, a business sport community more than anything. And, and what it's about is, is fun, really. People mixing. Yes, there's going to be business talked about, but it's about people mixing all different sports places and we only each horse has only got 20 percent of shares available it starts off a minimum of about 120 pound a month that's all it is 120 pound a month over two years if you're a business you can write that off against tax because it's going to be because we advertise your company as well so there's so many pluses in it and it's enjoyable i, I go down twice a week i drive down to hampshire see people and it and it's getting me out. I've always wanted just to get out and feel like, feel like I've got a purpose in, during my days. Not just going to the gym every day. I come back and that's me kind of done. But I've got other people ringing me. People who want to join are ringing, ringing me or emailing me. I'm actually learning maybe getting quicker on a laptop. <laughs> Finally. Well, that's a nice way to finish, Paul, because I didn't think I'd ever hear that, that you were going to get quicker on a laptop. That's brilliant. <laughs> but no, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed that. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, cheers, Richard. Always great to chat to Paul. Crikey, I love those days in Singapore. I really did. What a fantastic lifestyle it was and being on the TV. It really was living the dream but for Paul I suppose it was a little bit different because he already lived the dream with Manchester United and England but like I say fantastic to catch up if you've got any comments please get in touch on Twitter via at Richard Lenton that is at Richard Lenton please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and I know I keep saying it but if you can go on iTunes and give it a five-star review then it really does help new listeners potentially find the podcast so it would be hugely appreciated 
Thank you again for tuning into Footballers Lives, and I'll see you again next week. Footballers Lives was brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. www.psm-group.co.uk